So Ephesians 4, 1 to 16. As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, When he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. What does he ascended mean, except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended in the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens, in order to fill the whole universe. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every aspect the mature body of him who is the head, that is, Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Well, good evening, everyone. It's great to be with you. Let's pray that God would give us understanding of his word. Heavenly Father, Lord, your word is a comfort to the challenged and a challenge to the comfortable. And we pray that your word would do its work in our hearts, each one, as we have need. And that it would do it to the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, what we do here in church so often feels very ordinary. Our plain little church, we come, we sit in our chairs... We read the Bible together, we pray, we hear sermons, we stand and sing occasionally. It just looks so unimpressive at times. We do the same thing every week and often even in the same order. And there's many people in our world, I think, who would look at what we do here at Uni Church and they would say that, that what we're doing right now is perhaps the most unimportant. And the most unimpressive thing that's happening in our world today. And yet according to the Apostle Paul, according to uh, what we've been reading in Ephesians 4, that couldn't be more wrong. And that if we are ever tempted to think that somehow what we are doing here is unimpressive or, or unimportant, that actually we couldn't be more wrong either. That actually the gathering of God's people in gatherings all over the world, just like this one, they're actually the most important things that are happening in the universe right now. Now that's actually the big message of the whole book of Ephesians. In fact, the first three chapters, if I had time to to go through them with you, I, I could show you how Paul unfolds for us as we read his words, the eternal purposes of God. The purpose that God conceived in a past eternity for the world that he made. 
and the plan that God has been working out all the way down through the, the corridors of history, all the way down through the story of the Bible, and that's still at work today. And this purpose is that through Jesus Christ, through his death and resurrection, God would bring into existence something that is entirely new, a new family, a new society, a new humanity, a new creation, God's new family. And this family would include both both Jew and Gentile, that actually in God's family, men and women would be gathered from every cultural background, every nation, every language, every ethnicity, and they would be reconciled and united together as brothers and sisters in Christ, children of the same heavenly Father. And what happens when we gather, says Paul in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10, when we gather, actually the manifold wisdom of God is displayed for the whole universe to see. And so this, this gathering that might look unimpressive, that might look unimportant, Paul says, no. Even the very spiritual powers that are at work in our universe that are in opposition to God and his plan, when they see us, when they see the church gathered when they see us sing, when they see us pray, when they see us open God's word and and take it seriously together, they see something extraordinary. They see in the church the very wisdom and power and plan and victory of God displayed for all the universe to see. And you thought you were just coming to church tonight, didn't you? But what you've actually come to is a cosmic demonstration of God's plan. Now, what Paul does in in chapter 4, which is actually the chapter we're looking at, is he turns from exhortation to, to, well, he turns from exposition to exhortation. He turns from sublime Christian theology and he brings it down to earth, uh, down to the realities of everyday life. And so in verse 1, Paul uses all his authority as an apostle and all his passion as one who has been imprisoned for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ, to plead with us. Paul has told us what God is calling us to, this new creation, this new people, and now he tells us to live a life worthy of this grand vision for all humanity for which Jesus Christ died and rose again. And so it's no surprise that at the forefront of Paul's mind is our life together as a church. And how that works, our Christian unity. Uh, it is the together in making disciples together. If last week we turned about, we talked about our mission and our, our purpose as a church, uh, well, this week we're talking about our life together as a church. And one of the keys to understanding Christian unity, according to Paul, is to understand that there are actually two different kinds, or perhaps two different sides to Christian unity. Uh, and that's what I want to talk to you about today. And so forgive me for bringing you back to Ephesians chapter 4. Yes, I know that's what Ben talked about two weeks ago. uh, And Ben gave a great sermon on this two weeks ago. I encourage you to to go and have a listen to it on our our website. But here's the real version. No, no, that's not it. (laughs) Uh, But I want to take a slightly different angle and I want to explore some other things that I I said, particularly at the beginning of the chapter, to complement the great sermon that I do encourage you to go and, and, and listen to. So I want to talk to you about two things. I want to talk to you firstly about the unity that God gives us in verses 1 to 6, uh, which Paul calls the unity of the Spirit. And then I want to talk to you about the unity that we strive for in verses 7 to 16, 
which Paul calls unity in the faith in verse 13. And then I want to end just by spending a couple of moments to be practical about our life together as, as Uni Church. But it's uh, there for you to follow along with, and if you want to take notes, then that's great. But uh, let's talk firstly about the unity that God gives us. Come with me to verse 3. It's a really important verse. Verse 3. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Uh, this is a command. It's a command from the Apostle. And the command in verse 3 is to make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit, uh, to diligently keep the unity of the Spirit. And really, uh, the key word in that sentence is actually the word keep. Uh, when Christians talk about unity, in fact, when most people talk about unity in our world, we talk about it as something to be pursued, uh, something to strive towards, something that we have to work for. Uh, we must do things to kind of build the unity up amongst us. You know, we must find common ground, we must find common agreement, things like that. That's how we often talk about unity. But actually, Christian unity begins, says Paul, by keeping something that we already have because God has already given it to us. There's something that needs to be maintained because actually we already possess it. And this actually makes sense of everything that has been said previously in the book of Ephesians, in all of chapter 1 to 3, which Paul helpfully summarizes for us in verses 4 to 6, uh, where he says, There is one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. And so, of course, there is one people of God, one family of God. And that, that is a, a reality now, uh, not a, a goal for later. Through Christ and by the Spirit of God, we are all united together. And therefore, we are all united as one. It's not just something that happens magically along the way. As soon as you believe in Christ, as soon as you put your trust in Him, as soon as He, he baptizes you, gives you the Holy Spirit, you are united with God and therefore you are united with all Christians elsewhere, across time and even across space. And so there is that old saying that, you know, many of you know, you, uh, you can choose your friends, but you can't choose your family. And that's absolutely true of the Christian family. We don't choose who's part of this family that we're a part of, but God does. God does as he calls people to himself from, from all sorts of different backgrounds. In fact, it is God's great delight to bring people together who are different. Uh, to bring people together who, who come from uh, all sorts of different ways, if, uh, people who otherwise would never even sit in the same room together. And yet God, by his mercy, he, he unites them together in love and it displays the power of the gospel to the universe in a way that no other relationship does. The unity of the spirit, the Christian unity that God gives us. Therefore, keep it. Maintain what has been given. So how do we do that? How do we maintain the, the unity of the Spirit? Well, uh, verse 2, that's the answer. Verse 2. By living in such a way that we are completely humble and gentle and patient. Accepting one another in love. You see, how we maintain the unity that God has given us is by making an effort to be godly in our relationships with each other. Godliness is the key. Uh, putting others before ourselves, I think, is, is the common thread of everything that's said in, in verse 2, of, 
of looking at other people in our lives, looking at other people around us in our church and not saying, how can you make my life better? What can you give or what can I take from you in order to make my life better? But instead saying, what can I give to you to make your life better? How can I serve you? How can I love you? How can I sacrifice for you? Because after all, is that not the way that Jesus Christ has treated us? And we are to make every effort to do this. We're to do this diligently, says Paul. That is, even when it's hard, because it will be hard. After all, what unites us together is not actually that everyone here at Uni Church is a wonderful person. What unites us here together as Uni Church is that we are all forgiven sinners. And the prerequisite of joining our little club is that we actually confess to God that we are terrible people who need Jesus Christ to save us and can be right with no other with God no other way other than Christ's sacrifice on the cross. We all need the saving grace of Jesus. And we are all just forgiven sinners. And that absolutely describes me. I'm a sinner saved by the grace of Jesus Christ. I'm deeply aware of my own failures and my own sins, especially every time I get up and stand before you. I'm deeply aware even this week of the wrongs that I've done towards other people. Because ongoing sin is a reality in my life. And ongoing sin is a reality in all of our lives. From the senior minister through to each one of us. And so Paul says, he reminds us, because we need to be reminded, make every effort to treat people the way of verse 2, the way of godliness, love and patience and gentleness. Because at times we can be hard to love. We can test and annoy one another. We can drain one another. Uh, We can get into fights with each other. It's easy to be proud and to be assertive rather than to be humble. It's easy to be angry or or passive-aggressive rather than gentle. It's easy to be testy and, and irritable rather than patient. And perhaps even worst of all, it's easy just not to be there for others, to just ignore others, to treat them with nothing other than polite indifference but verse 2 is what we're called to do and not just sometimes but but all the time even when it's hard now it's interesting at this point that actually so far no point has Paul said that you have to agree with one another at no point has Paul said that we have to think the same thing I mean you would imagine that Surely agreeing with one another and surely thinking the same way is a prerequisite to unity, and and he will talk about that in a few moments' time. But when we're talking about this sort of unity, when we're talking about the connection that God gives us by his Spirit, Paul says, it's not maintained by thinking alike, it's by maintained by acting aright, by treating each other well. And this is a lesson that I continue to have to learn. And I'm very thankful to God for the moments in in my life where actually he's taught it to me well and he's reminded me of it powerfully. 
I remember many years ago now when I was uh, training to be a pastor. I won't tell you exactly how long ago. Then you'll know exactly how old I am. But many years ago, let's just say, you know, in the early 1800s, we, uh, to, we, I, I was studying to, to be a pastor and I was sent to a, a church as a, as a student minister. And uh, my boss was someone with whom I actually had some significant theological disagreements. We couldn't see eye to eye on some parts of God's Word. So much on, so that on paper, it would seem like it would have been impossible for us to work together. But actually, we had a wonderful relationship and I cherish the two years that I spent with him. Entirely because he was a very godly man who treated me very well. He loved me, he opened his home to me, he shared his family life with me, he shared his struggles with me, he gave me lots of his time. And he respected me. He even respected the positions I held, even when they were in conflict with his own. Uh, He once gave a sermon on a topic upon which we disagreed, and then he gave me time to stand up and to speak about an alternative position. (laughs) It was extraordinary. He went out of his way to ensure that I was never made to feel uncomfortable just because we disagreed about some things. He was in every way extremely humble and gentle and patient, and working with him was a delight that I fondly remember. In fact, I found it easier to work with him than I have at times found it to work with people with whom I agree entirely theologically. And I attribute that entirely to his godliness, because it certainly wasn't mine. No, we are called to godly Christian character. And relating like this ought to be our priority. Because much is at stake. It's not just that uh, by our ungodliness we might hurt another person, which is true and, and grievous enough. But it's also that when we do act in an ungodly way, Paul says that it is actually a threat to our unity. The greatest threat to our, the unity of the Spirit is not disagreements, but ungodliness. It's weak Christian character. That is the problem. And so whereas we might think that the person uh, who disagrees with you or who, who drains you or who hurts you or annoys you, you might think that they're the one who is the problem and they're the threat to our unity, Paul would say, no, they're not. Actually, it's how you respond to that person that's the real threat. Our failure to love is the real danger of disunity. The unity of the Spirit is the connection that God gives us and we keep it. We keep it by treating each other with love and with godliness. What a a simple and yet incredibly profound thing for us to be reminded of in our life together. But there is another side to this Christian unity that we have. The second part of Christian unity unity is very different. And this is the unity that we strive for, uh, that Paul calls the unity of the faith in verse 13. And rather than having it and being in danger of losing it, if we don't treat people lovingly, we don't start with it, but we ought to strive towards it. Now, is kind of Paul confused here? I don't think he is. Uh, This is either a different sort of unity or it's the other side of the same sort of unity. I can never really make up my mind, nor do I think it's important. But it's certainly something else that Paul has to say to us and that we need. And the two, we will see, do fit together. But in verse 11 onwards, what Paul makes clear is that the unity of the faith is reached through the preaching of some and the ministry of all. 
And so forgive me for going over uh, some ground that we heard about a little bit uh, a few weeks ago. Verse 11, have a look there again. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. Now what those four types of leaders in verse 11 have in common, it seems to me, is that they all speak God's word to God's people. That's what they all do. And we've benefited from all of them. Uh, We benefit from the apostles and prophets when we read their spirit-inspired words in the pages of Scripture. And we benefit from the work of present-day evangelists and pastors and teachers as they teach us those spirit-inspired words that come from the apostles and the prophets. But Christ has given to the church a great gift, some who have the gift to lead and to teach. They aren't more important than anyone else. They aren't more valuable than anyone else. And they aren't the only ones gifted. After all, we're all gifted. They simply have a particular responsibility and a special role. And that role is in verse 12. It's to train or to prepare God's people in the work of ministry to build up the body of Christ. Uh, Not all have this responsibility but those who do, it's, it's their responsibility to equip, to train, to, to empower all of God's people. Uh, their ministry is a ministry of, of preparation, of preparing others. And so that trained and equipped, all of God's people might go out and do those, those works of service, those works of ministry that build up the body of Christ. And so who are the ministers here at Unichurch? Well, two weeks ago, Ben very rightly said, it's everyone. And then next week you all arrived and it was on your name tags. And this week you've all been demoted. I don't know what happened. I don't... But of course it makes the point that is still true, whether you've got the name tag or not, doesn't it? We're all ministers here at Unichurch. We're all servants. Uh, Christianity is not a spectator sport. No one sits on the sidelines and doesn't participate. Each one has their part to play, their service to give. You have something to give here at Unichurch. And as you give, our unity in the faith, it grows. In fact, Paul tells us what that part to play is in verse 15. Have a look there now, have a look at verse 15. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is, Christ. From him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. We grow to fullness in Jesus as we speak the truth in love to one another. Now, speaking the truth in love to one another, it's, it's one of those wonderful phrases, isn't it? It's a beautiful phrase that's really kind of made its way into everyday language, hasn't it? I remember hearing one preacher describe it as honesty saturated with sweetness, that when we're speaking to a friend or a family member, you know, to tell the truth without love, it's deadly. But to love without any truth, it's just as deadly. And that's true, that's absolutely true. It's just not quite what verse 15 is saying. Uh, It's actually said a little bit later on in verse 25 of chapter 4. That's what 4 verse 25 means. But I don't think that's what Paul is talking about here in verse 15. Uh, When Paul says the truth, you'll notice, he means the truth. 
He means the truth of the gospel. That's the way that he uses it throughout the rest of the book of Ephesians. The truth of God's word. It's actually as we speak the truth of the gospel to each other in love that the body of Christ is built up. It's gospel truth in gospel love being spoken that Paul is talking about here. Uh, And as we warmly encourage one another, as we gather around God's word, as we reflect together on what God's word means in our life and in our church. And so it's absolutely happening right now. As I preach to you, uh, I am speaking to you gospel truth in gospel love. But actually what happens up the front at church is just the tip of the iceberg. It's the most visible part of this speaking gospel truth in gospel love, but it's also actually, I think, the smallest part of this speaking gospel truth in gospel love that goes on amongst us. It also goes on amongst us at all sorts of other times. It happens after church as we we share a bit of supper together or as we, we eat dinner together out in the hall. It happens as we gather together for our hub groups, And as we encourage one another and share with one another and and pray with one another and open God's word and take it seriously together. It happens as we have one-to-ones together, as we we share together our lives, open our lives up to each other. It happens just when you make a phone call or send a message to a friend just to to keep encouraging them to to take hold of Jesus and to, to stick to him. It happens in all sorts of ways around our church. Many, many more than than even what I'm mentioning now. But it's that work of speaking gospel truth in gospel love that really does build up the body of Christ. Even when it's not seen, especially when it's not seen. Uh, In my head, I actually call this work the ninja work of the church. Uh, uh, I call it that because uh, one man I used to pastor, that's what he called it, and then it kind of caught on amongst all the men. And so they all used to call it ninja work. In fact, they used to call the time after church, they used to call it ninja time because it was the time to do the unseen work of speaking gospel truth in gospel love. They threatened to get T-shirts until I tried to kind of talk them out of it. But, but that work, that work is so important in our life together. It's often unappreciated. It's almost always unseen. But it's never unimportant. And it should never be underestimated. In fact, to be honest with you, I think if all we did as a church was just speak gospel truth in gospel love to each other, if we just kind of cancelled all of our programs, didn't do camping ground, didn't do hub groups, didn't do all these other things, if we just spoke gospel truth in gospel love to one another, I still think we would be a healthy and growing and vibrant church. Because most of what we do is to just give us the space so that we can speak gospel truth in gospel love to one another can i tell you the secret of dinner you know we have dinner we often have dinner after after uni church can i tell you the secret of dinner we actually put an addictive chemical in dinner to make you crave it so you have to keep kind of keep coming back no that's not it at all the secret of dinner is time it's just there to help us have more time together and so much of what we do is just there so we can have more time to speak gospel truth in gospel love to one another. And any other structure that surrounds that, anything else that we're doing, is to just help us all to do that together and to do it in love. The unity of the faith. It's something to be reached. It's something that we strive towards. It's resourced by God's grace. 
It's built on the foundation of the unity of the spirit and the, and the godliness that keeps it. But it's reached as some teach and train and equip. And then as the rest of us serve and teach each other. And if you don't know what that means for you here at Uni Church, perhaps if you're, you're, you're new here at Uni Church, or even if you've been here for a long time and you still don't know what that means, then can I encourage you to, to ask God to show you and then feel very free to come and speak to someone up the front about it. Because God's promise is that he has given each one of us grace in verse 7. And in verse 16, the body of Christ is built up as each part does its work. And so I suspect in Paul's mind that doesn't begin by being given a job or, or given a title. I suspect that Paul means that it begins as we look at those around us and we think and we pray about how we can love them and serve them and encourage them. And of course, where is all this heading? Well, verse 13, it would be wrong for me not to mention it. It's heading towards maturity. And so we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves or blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning of craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Unity of the faith is about growing in Jesus together, growing mature in Jesus together. The fullness of Christ's maturity, even living in us. That's the goal of the Christian life, according to Colossians chapter 1, verse 28. And it means, here in verse 14, it means the ability to distinguish truth from error because we have been taught and we are teaching one another. It means that we can stick to the truth, particularly through the stormy seasons of life. When the temptations to give up on Jesus and, and to trust other things are very real and very tempting. It's about not letting ourselves be deceived. And it's about letting the Lordship of, grow, Lordship of Christ grow in our life until it covers over all. That there's no nook or cranny of my life. There's no, no relationship or no place or, or, or no thing in our life that is not subject to the kingship of Jesus. And all of this is Paul's vision for the church. Unity of the spirit that we keep with love and godliness and the unity of the faith that we, we seek through the ministry of all. That's Paul's vision for the church. That's Paul's vision for, for us and it ought to be our priority. Our character and our godliness, our attitude towards those who teach us, our attitude towards serving, our eagerness to speak the truth in love, to build others up to maturity, and even our striving for maturity together. Now, there's lots to take in there, isn't there? And so let me just try and bring it together a little bit by uh, dwelling a little bit on what this can mean for us and our life together as a church. In fact, let me take it the other way. What can't this mean? Uh, because of what Paul teaches us here, what can't this mean in our life uh, and in our church? And I think the first thing is it will be impossible to think that you can be a disciple of Jesus without being connected to other disciples of Jesus. We already possess the unity of the Spirit and we ought to strive for the unity of the faith. Being part of a church is not actually an optional extra in the Christian life. 
being part of a church, not just in name, but actually in person and in presence. Actually being here is vital. It's important, not just for our own lives, but actually for the sake of the faith of all those that we are connected to. Coming to church, it's not just about us, it's actually about everyone. And when you're not here, it's not somehow just you that suffer, it's, it's actually all of us. Coming to church matters. And we certainly won't be able to imagine that we can achieve maturity as a Christian on our own. There is no do-it-yourself Christianity. No build-your-own-maturity. It's impossible to think that you can achieve maturity on your own. Christian maturity comes from being connected to to other Christians. Uh, Paul here, I I don't even think that Paul measures maturity in terms of individuals. I think he only measures maturity in terms of whole churches. We're only as mature, I think Paul would say, as our brothers and sisters around us. And there is a thought that leads us away from any pride and towards service and love. And it's also impossible to imagine that we'll ever achieve maturity without godliness. The order, I think, of this passage is important. The unity of the Spirit comes before the unity of the faith. What God gives us comes before what we strive towards. You can't build towards unity of the faith without the unity of the Spirit. The godliness of verse 2 really is the foundation of the service that builds us towards that that maturity that is so beautiful. A church full of, of gifted people without godliness, well, that's the church of Corinth, if you remember our, some sermons from last year. You want to see what a, a church looks like when there's lots of gifts but no godliness? Go and read the books of 1 and 2 Corinthians and you'll see just how awful it can be. But nor can we imagine that somehow truth doesn't matter. Truth does matter. Unity at the expense of truth isn't any sort of unity either. There's no use in hanging on to a sort of sense of togetherness and good feelings about one another that denies the very things that actually do bring us together. We can't pretend to be united if we can't agree on the one hope, the one faith, the one baptism or the one Lord and what he teaches. Uh, It's the very foundation of our calling. And that's the struggle in the Anglican communion at the moment. To go off topic for a moment, uh, for the few of you who might be interested in this sort of thing or who've been reading the papers the last couple of days and couple of weeks, it's a struggle that's even happening in our diocese now. We are being asked to have unity without truth, which is no unity at all. And so the Anglican communion is in terrible confusion over what the relationships between men and women should look like. The Anglican communion is even in terrible communion now over how we should refer to God. But if truth without love leads to Corinth, then love without truth, it just leads to confusion. And look, if you want to hear more about that, then let me just say now, March 30, we're going to have another night together where I'll talk to all of our church about Uh, what's going on in the Anglican Church, the Anglican Diocese, and and how we're responding to it. But the bottom line is this, truth does matter. And where we can agree, we ought to pursue truth and maturity together. We ought to do so, and all the more as we see the day approaching. 
And of course, we won't be able to be a consumer in church either, will we? Showing up and expecting others to do all the work whilst we take home all the benefits. That's not how church works. There ought to be no consumers here, only servants, only partners in the family business. Servants who serve even whilst they're being served, which is God's brilliant design for the church. And so we certainly won't be able to imagine that church is a place where we come to learn or we come to enjoy or we come to have a religious experience or something like that. Nor is church a place where we just come to kind of get our our weekly spiritual recharge. All those things might be true. All those things might be things that do happen when we come to church. But actually, church is a place where we come to work. Where we come to get to work. Where we come to be builders. Building each other's up to maturity. A real community of love that speaks gospel truth in gospel love to one another. United by the one spirit and growing in the one faith. And that is the extraordinary reality of church. Sure, absolutely. When you go to uni tomorrow or when you go to to work tomorrow or whatever it is you're doing tomorrow, you go and tell people, yeah, I went to church last night. And a lot of people will go, boring, not important, unimpressive. Why did you bother? A lot of people will say that. A lot of people will think that, even if they're a bit more polite. But actually... There is nothing more extraordinary than coming to church. There's nothing more extraordinary than being part of God's display to the universe of his power and his wisdom and his victory as he unites us together in love and in truth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for the church We thank you for your people, for how extraordinary it is to be yours, Uh, to be a a gathering that displays to all of the universe, even the spiritual powers that are in opposition to you, your incredible wisdom, as well as your power and the victory that you won through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Lord, we pray that we would be united. We pray that we would keep the unity that you have given us and that we would strive towards the unity as we we grow in our, our service of one another in love, as we speak and encourage and admonish gospel truth in gospel love. But Lord, we also pray that you might forgive us. Forgive us our failures, God, and may we forgive each other. We know that there are times where we have wronged people in church, We know there are ways in which our ungodliness have threatened that precious unity that you've given us. And yet, Lord, we also know that your grace and mercy covers over all. And so may we know and appreciate this this gathering, this this group of people, this, this new creation that is called church. And may we appreciate it for what it is, your plan from eternity for us and for the glory of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.